Welcome back to Crash Chords. I am, of course, John. I'm Steve. And I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. We went through this. You're just Matt. When it's your week, you're Stormageddon. This time, That's you're just Matt. That's not how that works. He's sticking with that it's intro. Totally That's not how a stage name works. You always have a stage name. There's no stage here. In my it's mind. A for- okay. It's a mind stage. Yeah, there you it's go. a forum, not a stage that we're working with here. Forums usually imply that there's a forum stage. Forum sounds you- so much more pretentious than stage. Well, you can get off your pulpit right there. <laughs> now we're just using different I mean you're making a podium out of all of this nice that was nice there you go it didn't really make that much sense but I'll take it um, oh, so boy. John what are we doing this week since you introduced the show that means you picked this week's record this week we are doing Love Streams Love Streams is an oh. album I fell across kind of because I was looking for something weird and I discovered an artist named Tim Hecker He's been around 15 or so years. It's not like he's a new guy or anything like that, but this, from a guy who was already categorized as a little bit avant-garde, was said to be more avant-garder. I don't know how how to how to make that more. Just more. Just yeah. Just yeah. more Just avant-garde. More. Yeah. I, how to make that more? Use the word more. more. They or do basically. much more. Many much more. Many more. Okay. He's up. <laughs> Essentially, the article I was reading Less. about this and other bits of music that was on the peripherals was that a weird type of sound was made weirder by the artist who created it so i went into this one blind just a little bit of snippets here and there and i was hearing organs i was hearing guitar work and i was hearing glitchy weird distorted electronica so i went okay yeah we're doing this this week well when i groaned earlier it had nothing to do with the album in question or its aforementioned weirdness it has to do more with the title like we mentioned at the end of last week is incredibly sexual love streams well it could just be the flowing of love throughout the universe it could be romantic too i think why are you going to such a dirty place i don't know put it this way that his last album was called virgins so there's that Okay. Well, it could just be because you're being introduced to a new type of sound and your virgin ears can't handle it any other way than the hey. disclaimer that you So here's you, my question. You're virgin to this idea. Is, does he does he talk about relationships publicly? Like has he had issues? No, actually it's completely on the peripheral of all of that. He yeah. actually said that he came up with this album because he was having thoughts about uh, liturgical aesthetics after he listened to Jesus, which is the Kanye West album. Uh, and also the transcendental voice in the age of autotune. So that those those were the things that he was mulling about as he was creating this well, album. I, can, I mean, I guess I can. I and can that s- brought him to Iceland <laughs> in order to record it. Well, I mean, I can see the connections to the word love stream, the title love streams rather, because I mean, th- there's a lot of love in pop music. You know, it's romantic love, it's passion, it's raw sex. Like, there's a lot of sex appeal as well as romantic love. You know, kind of any form of love in pop well, music. Well, I'm not committing to any of these things. Yet. Right. I Absolutely know. nothing. <laughs> The, the, first of all, it's all an instrumental. You're not yep. going to be getting... Well, you're getting a little bit of, like I said, the liturgical aesthetics. Yeah. So you're getting vocals in the background, but I don't think you're going to pick out any lyrics. There aren't. As far as I could tell, there it is. there's no lyrics. I here. was not able to find any. Um, it just is the, the essence, I guess, of liturgical work. 
Sure. Because there is a semblance of choir there, but it's yeah. all very disjointed. Uh, Intentionally disjointed, seemingly. He also is working with some of the same people that he was working with on the last album. Uh, one is an Icelandic composer named Johan Johansson. I believe that's how it's pronounced. Grimmer Helgeson, that's another one. Lots of Icelandic names. The, our only experience with Icelandic music, by the way, is Bjork and Sigaros, which are some pretty obvious connections to yeah. uh, Icelandic music. If you're a listener and you're Icelandic and Steve is butchering the names, you can send your hate mail to steve.nagel at crashboards.com. You don't say. have to be Icelandic. You could just know the correct pronunciation that's also for true. everything. That's, that's also true. true. Yeah. Well, anyway, he is not Icelandic. He is from Canada, but apparently Iceland is where he gets well, his I news. Mean, I Iceland actually has a humongous music scene. It's very, oh, yeah. it's, 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 and it's very, I've heard one of the more unique music scenes too. So going there to record makes perfect sense. Based on what I've heard from music that is recorded there, there must be something in those geysers. <laughs> well, it's not just that. Uh, they also, I believe it's the origin point for the unsound concerts and the unsound festivals, which are, uh, I mean, they take place around the world, but they're known for being a, very much a Northern European idea, just exploring, like, the fringe music and the avant-garde music and making think, it popular I, and, and hitting those concert stuff. I'm sure it's the obvious answer, but I think it has something to do with the geography uh, of Iceland and that it is actually on the fringe of Northern Europe and of Europe and or any continent for that matter. Sure. Sure, I'm going to give a shot to that one. <laughs> no, that's geography. That, that is a sure, and you can bet your bottom dollar. All right. All right. Track well, one. Yeah, let's dive in. Uh, track one is called Obsidian Counterpoint. Um, and, I mean, from the way the track starts, it doesn't sound unfamiliar to other kind of synth electronic work we've done before, at least within the first few seconds. There's, there's some unique qualities to it. I, uh, within the first few seconds, it gets more unique as it goes on. But something about the just the raw cut of this that I really liked how it's just the track kind of erupts out of nowhere. There's no real sure. lead-in. There's no gentle build. There's no launching point. It's already in the air. It's whizzing about. But that's not to say that there's no intro. An intro is actually what I'd call approximately the first 30 seconds. Essentially, a series of short airy tones in rapid succession. It's kind of tough to find a pulse, though. Like, generally, I would say it's full of 16th notes, but, like, 16th notes relative to what? I'm not really getting a sense of measure dividers because there's very little phrase repetition here. It just weaves in and out of chord regions, and it has the air of, well, of air. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... it's Hollow was a word I think it was already thrown out. It's yeah, echo. I had said it's, that. it's because of yeah. how echo and these overlapping echoes seem to exist. You can't quite pin down what a meter would be in this case. So having it in that little nebulous area where you don't quite know what tempo you're working with or what framework you're working. The funny with thing is, I know is the really tempo. Nice. I don't know the meter. Uh, yeah, meter, not but tempo. Thank you. I I do get a lot of visuals here. I mean, this is one of those albums where that's kind of where we have to bank. I mean, not just the fact that we do that tend to do that more with instrumental because we're talking about what we see in the moment, but also because it's it seems so intentionally cagey at first, but at the same time also very atmospheric that I feel it's hard for me not to, I guess, be drawn in that direction. Like, for me, I picture this wispy, pterodactyl-like creature, like in freeform flight, doing somersaults in, in the gleam of the sun. That was what I pictured. It's funny, like... Just in the first 30 seconds. This, this first track, I didn't really picture anything, and to this moment I can't actually recall anything I might have pictured, but I will say that... The well, there are on opposite sides, aren't we, from usual? Yeah, but that said, after that first 30 seconds, 
the track kind of solidifies itself in existence for me a little more once we get what sounds like a physical woodwind instrument. Steve said it might have been a pan flute. Perhaps. There's well, one guy that would actually be Grimmer Helgeson who does most of the woodwinds, or we don't know if there's even plural there. Right. We're not sure, but it did, it did have that physical feel. It sounded like a woodwind, yeah. right? In fact, it sounded like it was maybe just a little bit too close to the mic. Give it a little bit extra distortion because... Which made it feel like it was something that was actually there. Yeah, it really did a good job of contrasting the the very background nature of that hollowness that was building because of how just different they felt physically from one another. Well, see, what you're pointing out as the difference of volume structures in this album, everything is always in peaks that we don't usually find on most albums. Everything Mm -hmm. is, like, if you're listening on headphones, it's actually very easy to find certain sections that would normally be that would just roll right off your back here, they're kind of, they'll they'll be disconcerting because right. it's loud and especially loud like on one side. Granted, that's, that's standard for, you know, stereo, but still on this album, it seems like everything wasn't compressed to standard. Yeah, it's he, like he's, he's taking liberties beyond. Keeping certain layers at a higher volume level to create an impact that you otherwise might not have if they were all equalized. Which is, you know, I, I, I guess I respect the idea of, of reaching outside the box, but it can always you know, have negative connotations also. Right, but, it can but, turn people away. But I but I also I think it's a unique way to approach music, especially since it's something that we have not really talked about ever. Sure. Most, people, most people ascribe to those standards because, right. you know, that's... It's a standard it's, for a reason. Yeah. In fact, this uh, unusual presentation does this even further as we get um, uh, uh, these weird punctuating drops. I'm going to use the word weird a lot today, but I'm going to try not to. Weird punctuating drops that are deep and wooden yet seem to also like dissolve into static at the end of their of the end of the notes they were creating. I heard more of a metallic within them. I thought I interpreted it as more of a clanking, I suppose. But the funny thing about like the reveal of this instrument, which is around a minute and eight seconds, as opposed to the reveal of the pan flute around the 30 second mark, is that I had two very opposite reactions with both of them. Like when the pan flute melody came in, which we haven't really talked about, just apart from the, the, the instrument itself which right. was a nice little addition. The, it, it does introduce a melody, mm-hmm. but at first I didn't think it was going to introduce a melody. I thought it was actually going to add more instability to the piece like right. we experienced in the first 30 seconds, but instead adds this very distinct, and I thought it was a strikingly beautiful melody. It just begins to emerge as this slow and plaintive 30-second piece. But then you have the experience of the clanking, which was kind of an odd choice at first, but expectations are being thrown. It was the reverse effect. I thought that these crashes were going to complement the piece and that they were going to, you know, be the bold percussive accent marks that actually serve to bind everything together. Instead, they kind of did the opposite. They set me off back where I was in the beginning into that, like, nebulous zone where I didn't think everything was even. And well, it's fact- in- what I was going to say was what's interesting about those tones specifically is that they do come in on accented, like instrumentation as if you would think they would be in synchronicity but they weren't they were they were off-putting and it was just a bizarre amalgamation of sounds to try and comprehend yeah. which made them actually seem portrayed which is the point you interrupted me yeah. on but that was a good setup for this it made them seem like they were be they were foreshadowing something bad they were getting a little bit on the sure, ominous yeah. side mm-hmm. uh, a little bit thick is probably the easiest way. If you're not going to describe I mean, an actual we, emotion idea we here. We get more of that towards the end of the song, but yeah, I know what you're trying to say. I think that what's interesting is the parts that Steve was talking about, the track starts to pick up speed a bit, and then even like around the three-minute mark, it gets lighter and airier, and those heavy tones kind of go away. 
And then from there, we more or less stay in that until we get to the end, which is that thicker section that John's talking about. Well, the, that's that's a that's a different kind of thickness. A different There's thickness. All, as far as, I mean, we're going to be using a lot of physical qualifiers going on right now. But I think it warrants it, this music. For an electronic album, it's surprising how much we're going to be staying close to the, the acoustic and the uh, even the analog as opposed to the digital, let's say. Right, yeah. I mean, I think it's at its soul it has that in it. It's what makes it... I think stand out a little more because it sounds like it's coming from a place that's based in that acoustic and analog realm. It's not like it's not Arca. Like Arca, I feel was doing a little bit more uh, that was certifiably electronic. Right. It's, it's easy to forget, even if much of it is. At least at this point. Yeah. Especially when we go into a a B section for this track, it's hard right, to that really was the say. Thing I mentioned earlier. Yeah, it's hard to say that there's an A B C going on with no, this but that... because in, in in I would even say that it's not quite. Connected. I mean, it's but not I don't disconnected say, either. I know that's yeah. it's another one of those nebulous things. There's so much nebulous no, but see, going on. Well, all right, Here, I understand okay. it's not an ABC thing, but I like I still I understand this track in terms of like the intro thirty seconds, the pan flute thirty second segment, and then the the crashing. And it's like each each individual instrument is given its own spotlight, sort of. But then it does start to really break down around three minutes. Like in that three minute mark, it it. It doesn't quite get lighter yet. Actually, a pulse sort of takes over, which at first is very foreboding. But because of the background ambience, there's this there's sort of a consonance building here, and yeah. I think that's what you meant by it. it's a little bit more delicate. Um, and then the pan flute is actually still there, if that's what it is. It's peeking out of the darkness, like it's in the background. So. It, like, there is a lot of tie-in, I think, in this first track, and I think that's what I find most fascinating about it. There's, you can't really mold it to anything else that we've seen. Especially because it seems to kind of jump off the rails with a, a few ideas that, that are presented, like the very muffled, almost woolen tapping that's going on that almost creates a rhythm, the organ that shows up, very light, very background, almost in the same level as that wool drum set that's that's doing something yeah. it's very it's it's not background because it seems to almost be a forefront element that's just extremely muted i think i mean this has come up in a couple of other uh examples a couple other episodes where we've talked about like staging and how like things sometimes move stage left stage right mm -hmm. and how the spotlight sort of shifts this is a case where it feels like he's not just doing that with like one or two instruments but almost every single thing that he uh, shows off at some point will yeah. probably get to shift around in several different places within the piece and like he does that with the flute, and he does that with the clanking, and then it seems that the, he also does that with the static. There's like a static that comes towards sort of toward the tail end here. The static at first is benign; it's just there, but then it starts getting louder and louder and louder. And it, I don't know. It, as it gets louder, it's weird. It's becoming more consonant as we go. So you have yeah. consonants alongside the disconcerting static. Right. And then eventually the static does disappear, and it feels like we've come to, if not a sense of resolution, at least a sense of peace at the end of this track. Well, I wouldn't even say peace, because this goes back to the thick comments we were making earlier. Right. This, this section with the static is another one of those thick sections, very dense section, but it's not loud. It's like, it starts off... At, at like a nice chunk of ham, but you know, really thick, kind of marbleized. Yeah, I think I, the fat off. I of definitely it. think dense is a better way to put it. I yeah, mean, and well, it's well, but because it's so silent, because it's so quiet for what music is. It's really when it when it when it breaks apart, it's almost like you were holding your breath. I wouldn't necessarily say 
piece. That wasn't quite the direction I was feeling when I got to the end of the track, when the static kind of broke apart, but it felt like I just exhaled. It felt like I finally caught my breath yeah. in that part. Yeah, I, I can see how Steve would consider it peaceful because it does have elements of what you could consider like a peaceful track would be. I think for me, it felt like I was enveloped in it. I didn't really feel peaceful, but I can understand how someone would. But it did, again, envelop me. It did feel very thick. Like I said, like I it, ha- it has me. to do with the context of the piece. It yeah. has to do with having experienced this, this rigmarole, right? And right. not all the components of which I didn't necessarily enjoy. Like, there are some things that, you know, blew me away how beautiful they were, and then there are other things like the clanking at about yeah. a minute in. I like how it kind of distorts everything because of it sort of changes pitch as it goes, but I thought that this was going to, like, serve to intensify the stable melody that we had just prior to that, and it didn't really do that. Instead... Like, by about halfway through the piece, like, by 2 minutes 30, 2 minutes 45 seconds around that area, by the time it was wrapping up, I started to realize I was not getting accustomed to the clanking by that point because it was still sort of all over the place. It was kind of like a fish out of water. Yeah, I I didn't really enjoy this track, but I found it interesting. And that'll come up again on the next track because Music of the Air had the exact opposite feeling. I enjoyed it more. But it definitely seemed to have less going on. You know, it starts with a more droney synth sound, whereas the last track kind of, Steve had said, kind of just started like it was always there. This does kind of more have a, a little bit of a build because of the way the, the, the synth drones. Well, I have two comments on that. One is that I actually did enjoy track one, I think, a little bit more because it was interesting. I right. only pointed out a couple of elements that I didn't like. There's a lot that I loved about it. But track two is the opposite of track one in many ways. Number one, it ha- offers cleaner tones yeah. uh, instead of these, like, short, isolated, cold... Uh, little tones that we get in track one here everything is drawn blended warm it's like it's trying to wrap you more in a protective blanket that i I find more more relevant here than track one i felt more peaceful here than at the end of the last track true even though and i agree with you but even though the the actual drone itself felt like a bad computer connection in in some ways it had that Mm -hmm. kind of idea it didn't quite end its phrase work cleanly so it it it's it's a little bit ripe. It's a little bit decomposed well, here, towards the end of the Here's the, the irony. Like, I, I, I hear exactly what you're talking about, and in many ways that is analogous. Even in these warm tones, the disjointed nature of them and how it doesn't really wrap itself up is kind of the way I felt about the clanking back in track one. Now, mm-hmm. those are two very different kinds of sounds, but yet they have the same kind of jumpy structure to them. And I feel like... It worked more here because at least it was in a more peaceful environment than what track one was doing. And and that, I agree. And yeah, it has I to, agree it has with, to do with like placement. I mean, like yeah. you can be as, as disjointed as you want, but I guess as long as the setting is nice, then you're you have more leeway. This is the first track, also, where we actually get some of the. Uh, Quiry, nonsensical vocals that you were mentioning. It's we're just gonna. I don't. I don't even know if we can call it quiry quite yet. We we'll just were, call them vocal instrument number fact, one. The vocals were actually there in the tail end of track one, and they bled cleanly right into track two. Oh. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. The transitions are so uh, overlap so much in this record that it's kind of hard to tell it's the, the very common on this album that I had to look up and like, oh, we're already well into the, next, the next track. track. Yeah. Um, but what I like about the presentation of the vocals here is they're delivered in a way that sounds like a conversation with nonsense words and it creates this kind of David Lynchian kind of 
moment because in in a lot of his movies there are these moments where people are presented at face value like they're having a conversation or something very grounded and real is happening but either what they're talking about doesn't make sense or the scene doesn't make sense or the actual language they're using doesn't make sense and I got a sense of that here well in this case it could actually be all of the above right because again there could be like semblances of words that are in Icelandic that the three of us don't understand but even what is there even if it were another language I still believe it's too disjointed it's to get up, complete yeah. phrases out of it um, it just it kind of sounds to me like you were placing a microphone in a room where there are a lot of people, right? And they're out in, uh, indistinguishable conversations, but mm-hmm. there is maybe one or two prominent singers, right? That are actually full blown singing a melody that feels integrated with the rest of the piece. But then the rest is sort of a middle ground between the non musical and maybe something that is. Like, like they're other members of the choir, but they're yeah. not doing their job. <laughs> sure. I don't know, but it's all I, obviously how he planned it. Right. Well, I mean, I, it's only because it's fresh in my mind because I just rewatched Mulholland Drive recently. But there's a scene in that movie where the two leads are at a club where uh, No Eye Banda is playing, which is there is no band. And there's this guy doing what seems like magic on stage and then talking about there's no band and that it's a recording and then a trumpet player comes out and he's not actually playing trumpet. And it's this very bizarro scene where something is happening, but it's also kind of not. And that's where you know in the movie that there's a break here. Something weird is happening. Which I think brings us back to the initial point that you made in the beginning of this track, and that's the fact that this whole... By the end of track two, I felt very much like not as much had happened yeah. here than had happened in track one. And that is despite being in a much better place. I mean, a, a more soothing environment. Yeah. I actually... Because I've been remaining kind of quiet about this one. I actually made a connection... From this to a book I read, not recently, it's a few years ago now, but um, a book by Kate Griffin called A Madness of Angels. It's an urban fantasy book, um, meaning modern-day fantasy, meaning mages in London. Right. One of the supernatural elements that is created in this book to help the story is the electric blue angels. The electric blue angels can only be heard on dead phones, and they are actually sort of the id of all the conversations people have on the phones. All the little snippets of words and emotions that get projected from one to another form this identity, power source, supernatural being. This sort of sounds like the Twilight Zone with the old woman speaking on the phone with the deadline that is hanging yes. in her uh, now-deceased husband's gravesite. <laughs> That's kind of where it starts, but it goes much further than that because for the most part, nobody can understand the Electric Blue Angels. They come off a lot like this track came off. Just snippets of sounds that sound like vocals, that sound like uh, a male or a female or a group talking together that you can't quite understand but seem to have some emotional charge to them. Well, it's context. It's how it's how the vocals are being said that it sounds conversational even if it doesn't make sense. And when I made the connection to a pretty solid book and connected the two, I really started regarding this track a lot differently. Music of the Air... It feels like it's those voices that are between people in in a city or in a town or in the outside. It feels like it's it might actually be a representation of the radio waves that carry people's voices from one to the other. Just from the context of 
well, that oscillating tone had kind of a bad connection feel to it. I confess... Or the vocals were kind of broken up and clipped and still a little bit electronified. I confess that most of what you're describing, I experience more later in the album when we get other tracks that mm. introduce vocals in this manner because they kind of sacrificed any singing qualities or any musical qualities to them except for the instruments that surrounded them. Here, remember, there was the... It seemed to be a lead vocalist, which kind of... Uh, Strangely enough, you'd think that would ground me here, but it actually kind of put it in both places at once, which made it slightly less impactful and didn't allow me to uh, experience it with the same emotional weight as maybe you took from it. But I do get that later. Uh, but you, And you do understand what I'm talking about, right? Yes. I want to make that clear. Yes, <laughs> yes I do. Okay, my, yes, imagery, do. my imagery's kind of on it, point? It'll, it'll okay. be coming back later. Okay, cool. Um, we neglected to mention the static that is also here, but that pretty much serves the same role as it did in track one. And it makes uh, several appearances throughout the album. Let's go to track three. Baija Dream. I believe that's being pronounced right, because the only thing I can actually acquire from this spelling, B-I-J-I-E, is that it is a place in China. Um, so, maybe? Maybe it not. Could be. Um, maybe it's just a name that he made up. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to, I don't know that I want to start because my, my, su the way I would summarize the track, at least early impressions of it, is someone let cats loose in a recording studio and they ran all over the keyboards. Like, <laughs> it, you know, Steve mentioned a little bit earlier how certain things seemed like they might not have necessarily needed to be where they were or felt a little out of place, possibly even arbitrary. Here, when this track starts, it feels completely all over the map. Like, I'm, I'm a little overwhelmed by just the tones and noises that are happening, which is why I equated it to cats running around on keyboards. It's like there's nothing gluing it together. Yeah. I, it feels very like much to me. Because there's no through line. It, well, first of all, the, the tones that is kind of using a sort of an 80s synthesizer, but mm -hmm. everything is just so sporadic. He's in multiple ranges of the keyboard, it seems. M many of them overlapped. And again, you can't really find a pulse. It's hard to find a rhythmic structure here. Um, it just kind of... One could say flows, but it also is so harsh each and every time a tone occurs that you don't expect it, that I don't really see it as flowing. They're just kind of yeah. overlapping. Like, I would see it almost as a form of improvisation that doesn't really have a logical structure to it. Improvisation inherently is just kind of from your gut, you know? You just go with what you feel, and that in itself can be very, very brilliant. You could just be speaking from the muse, but for this, it feels like it was lacking the things that would connect it to, let's say, the core melody, which is often what we equate a really brilliant improv to. Like, we think of them as being so brilliant because they take components and rework things that were in the main part of the song, but there is no main part yet because this is the very beginning. Yes. So. No, yeah. Like, for example, with Chikoria, a lot of the improvisation on that record we attributed because it came much later in the track and it usually reflected on what, exactly. what had happened earlier but expanded on it. Here, I don't, there's not even that much expanding. I feel like. So, so it's, it's, thing, wait, wait, no, no, no. it's sending I, me wait. through an odd loop of emotion, which I guess is a good thing because, on one hand, the tones themselves, once again, incredibly soothing, but the rhythm or the irreverence of that rhythm is really disconcerting. It does go through a major shift. It doesn't really build or thicken up or whatever we're going to use as our, our word of the track. It does sharpen. That's the word of the track I want to use. It clarifies. It really does go through a, a, a shift about halfway through where the nice soothing tones that are kind of all over the place gain clarity, gain hard edges, hard beginnings, hard ends so that they become more like, say, sharp piano work as opposed to the nice soothing lullaby that we were getting earlier. That 
felt like it was the point of that improvisation. Uh, it was the point of being kind of scattered and kind of arbitrary in its ideas because once it sharpens up, I felt like it actually did start fleshing out what a rhythm is or what a melody is it still wasn't there it was still kind of avoiding the issue of a melody but i understood now what the notes themselves were trying to say you know this may be the kind of thing where we listen back to in 20 years and we wonder how we were ever not able to really comprehend yeah Yeah. no no i mean like this may be a, a logical direction of music, for instance, to sacrifice, boldly sacrifice these kinds of things, like pulse. Like, this is another track, could not find a pulse in it. I I usually welcome those changes, but I felt that maybe he was banking off the soothing nature of the tones themselves, and that maybe there could have, could have served to have more of a story-driven quality to this track. Yeah, I think that, for me, I'm getting lost in the layers. At this point, we're three tracks in, and I just feel like... It seems like he's building these tracks layer by layer and then fitting them together to get some kind of impression or or take you to a certain place. I don't know that that's the case. He could have composed everything together. He could have played around and sampled a bunch of stuff. It's hard to tell. But to me, I feel like there are distinct layers that I'm kind of getting lost in between. I think back to some of our more like avant-garde artists like yeah. Yugen. Yeah. And I, I, I think usually I welcome these challenges. Yeah. And I... I guess for some reason it's just not quite working here. And maybe that is because he really is standing right on the peripheral. And yeah. you wouldn't think that to listen to this album immediately. Like, I don't think it was... For someone listening to the very, very beginning of this album, like, just at a glance, I don't think they would think it nearly... It is nearly as disjointed as we in this conversation are are letting on. Right. Well, you know? well like I but said... But that's because of the ambient qualities of it. We've right. heard a lot of that stuff before. If but then were, when you really peer in, it, it is pretty disjointed. If you were to take this album on face value or just kind of take pieces, it could very much feel that way. Yeah. And I feel like because we're looking at the big p- picture, we're seeing a lot of it. I think that... I'm leaving room for the possibility that means that, that there are patterns here that we may not be comprehending. Yeah, I, and I absolutely agree. I think that there could be something that's gone over my head. And more about that as we go. Let's let's go to track four, Live Leak Instrumental, which this is, is an act- instrumental. This is actually <laughs> poised to be that story-driven track that yes. I kind of... Yes, it is. Because of the tragic introduction here in the beginning, there's... These crashes that it starts off with, followed by these echoes that just dwindle into the night. Now, there's really no words, once again, to draw from here, so you have to take a leap of faith. Imagine you're standing on a precipice, and you can actually see the weather acting beneath you because you're above the this, the storm. And it's a cold and desolate place. There's reason to be fearful because you could just fall and then it'll all be over. But also, it's kind of nice to be beyond the force of the weather, to be above it all. Kind of like an astronaut has a lot to fear, but he doesn't have to fear a hurricane. So, you know, there are some things that you're completely above. You're beyond these kinds of, uh, these kinds of problems. I, this is the way I feel. I feel like I'm, I'm observing some kind of reflection of chaos, but I'm not in any immediate danger. And that's a very interesting place to be with this track. Yeah, it has this kind of mystical feel like you would probably, you know, see in a very cheesy or not so cheesy kind of hero learning a lesson or trying to build his skills kind of movie. But I think what's really interesting is it also... Because as we get into more instrumentation of this track, there are these kind of faux physical strikes. It reminds me of Blue Man Group to a point when they would do their loud percussion, but it's clearly digitized here. However, I think that adds to Steve's kind of 
you know, imagery of it. But I think it more, you know, metaphorically also feels like you're kind of looking down at your own life and seeing the chaos of it. That storm that's beneath you. And I'm well aware, like, to, to actually use the word arbitrary before at some of his solos, you know, it's, I, I, my imagery could be just as arbitrary. Sure. But it is, it is something, and I imagine that would be a success for most artists, to instill that kind of imagery. So let's talk about the actual tones, because that's the thing we haven't even touched on yet with this track. I always started with those crashes and the echoes, and that is what launched me into that whole tirade. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the other aspect that is the kind of the defining feature of this track is the bright tones, the sharp tones, which, uh, to use imagery, because imagery is all we got going for us right now, they were sharp, nice and edged, but the way they flowed on top of one another, think of a chain being dragged along bumps. The chain itself doesn't fall apart, it just moves along the bumps themselves, but the actual timbre of each link as it hits the various bumps or rocks or edges is a little bit different from one another. There's a flow, and it's easy, and it's going, but there's still a sharpness to it. That lightning crash, I guess, or maybe distant thunderstorm tone that really set up this track keeps that easy flow, the sharp easy flow, but the easy flow from really being too soothing, too, you know, just immersive. It allows you to bounce out of it, and that's, I think, what's, what's keeping it removed, what's letting you be above the clouds as the storm rages. Yeah, but, and also, you know, what you just said there with the whole lightning thing, like, imagine, again, you're standing on the precipice, you're looking down at the weather, and you see these lightning storms, but they're happening below you. Again, they're not aff affecting you directly, but also, lightning is a set mostly random. Right, you cannot yeah. usually can't predict the frequency with which lightning can occur, and that in many ways kind of invalidates the previous argument that we're saying. Well, you know, where's the pulse? Where are the yeah. uh, where are these even structures? But there are things in nature that do not have even structures, which is why, once again, give some leeway to the artist and grant them the ability to ex experiment with things that can't really be deciphered. Well, I would say also this track, um, to build off what Steve's saying, is also the most of the realm of the physical track that we've had so far. Like, I don't necessarily, not all of the instrumentation sounds physical, except for the, like, the louder strikes I was talking about, the, the lightning or thunder, if you will. Not my chain? Your chain, well, your chain too, but what I'm saying is, <laughs> all of these sounds don't sound physical like the woodwind did in the very first track, but they give me more of a feeling of being in the physical world, because I'm, I'm for the first time actually picturing things. That is true. And I think that's what I like best about this track, and why it's one of my early favorites, is because it put me somewhere. Whereas the other tracks I was kind of, were head scratchers for large chunks of them. Here, I kind of was swept up in it, and I didn't have any questions. All right. That, I would say that w that is a success in that case. <laughs> so, all right, different successes, different places, different people. Uh, next two tracks are actually a pair. Track five is Violet Monumental 1, and track six is Violet Monumental 2. So let's start with the first. Um, the first it, thing you hear here is that primal thump, like... Well, I said a heartbeat, but it's H not as regular. Hand in hand with like this ambient screech. Mm -hmm. There's this high pitched screech, but then there's the bass pulse. But it's kind of an intermittent pulse. Like it, it's it's steady. It is something steady that you can follow for a while. But then when it when it stops, it's just it's gone. Yeah. And then it'll come back you know, a few seconds later. But I like that when it stops, you're just left with the screech. So once again, it's just playing with uh, layering with the spotlight. But then after a while, the vocals start coming we in. Get, like and this was the track that I mentioned earlier. It 
is much more like the experience that when John compared it to uh, was my the imagery novel? from yeah was the, the novel again a madness of angels a madness of angels well because this has a more of a murmuring quality than the other vocals it's, did it's, and they don't line. none of them come across as singers or rather yeah. all, maybe a few of them in the background aren't powerful and like they're the singers but they're not powerful enough they don't have that spotlight the rest feel like they're just having a con either a conversation that isn't inherently musical but is framed as musical because of the screech and the pulse. It wasn't even just one line of vocals, though. There was the low murmur. There was the mid-range babble. I, I don't even want to call it a murmur because it was more clear design. And murmur, you think whispering or something like that. It's chatter. It, yeah, chatter. And then there was the higher pitches that would come in every once in a while. It, was, it wasn't just one conversation being framed musically. It was multiple overlapping conversations. You feel like you're in a be, crowded bar trying to be almost. compressed on one another. But now let me explain the reason why this was more akin to your analogy before. And that is because this felt like I could hear distinct emotions in the course of these intermittent conversations. I felt like I heard them get angrier at times. I felt like I heard them get more intense, or rather, they, he they was they, he was messing with the faders. You know, they were he was pushing certain sections of this audience or of this crowd up, and then moving others down. I actually really liked the moment at two minutes nineteen seconds in this track, how the music grew in in intensity to follow that vocal intensity. Well, so yeah, you, you have said a spell it angrier. Almost. The, well, the, the 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 vocals themselves, the the, the people, they sounded angrier, and sure. then all of a sudden they're gone, and you're left with the music that is a lot louder. This is another one of those moments where he's just ramped it up. There's no compression here. You might even have to turn it down if you're listening on headphones. But it really reflected what the vocals were doing. So there's a little bit more, you know, balance between the instruments and the vocals than I found in track two. Yeah, I mean, I think what it reflected most for me once it got louder like that is I was telling an anecdote off the air about how I find lately, this also depends on how bad my anxiety is, but if I'm in a social situation where I may not necessarily know a lot of people and there are a lot of conversations happening around me, eventually I hit this place where it just sounds like noise. I can't hear distinct voices, it's just noise and it's unnerving for me. It, it happened to me very recently. and. It, it happened to me last night, but I confess I don't have an, an anxiety reaction as a result of it, but it, it definitely makes it almost pointless. Like, the right. whole point is out there to be social, and then you can't understand anyone, even someone who's, like, a foot from your face. So, for <laughs> me, it's not that I was the anxiety was a reaction to that. It's that if I'm already in a very introverted place where I don't know a lot of people and I'm having trouble having conversations, being in that situation kind of walls me off. Right. And this... This moment in this track replicated that feeling perfectly for me, even though it was not the identical You mean the noise. moment where all the vocals cut out? Mm, no, what, and there was just noise, yeah. Which, yeah that's interesting, because I, I, I well, do feel that as a stark cut. Uh, that was about the three-minute mark, when right. everything kind of cut out, and we just got that, that rumble of white noise with the long organ work being played throughout the, there it. There is this, like... And yeah, there's this organ work because of the progressing polyphony. This is around, like, the end of the song where everything just keeps on climbing upward, climbing upward. Yeah. And it does sound like organ pipes, like, overlapping one after the other, very organized. This is another section where, you know, things are structured. But it also has no end in sight. Like, we just keep on modulating up and up and up, and then there's an electric guitar that sort of comps overhead. So this, to me... This is the narrative that I asked for. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was beautiful. There's an arc here. There is something, there's a larger structure 
even if you miss the structure on the moment-by-moment experience. Well, yeah, I think on the moment-by-moment experience, there's almost no groove at all. Like, you, it's it's kind of hard to follow at moments if you're looking at moment-to-moment. Yeah. But bigger picture, 10,000-foot view, I think you can kind of start to put the pieces together better. It's especially prevalent in the, the transition from part one to part two yeah. because we had been building this oppressive blanket on top of everything. That white noise... That was just kind of like, like really starting to get to you, and your ears gets, gets broken apart. And when we go into just a, a, a three step, yeah, it does. It has a <laughs> yeah. clearer groove. It has the instrumentation sounds. Just a, it's a one, two, three, and we have a beat. We have a rhythm. Yeah. The funny a, thing is that these two tracks are so connected that at the end, I was thinking, I was wondering when he was going to wrap up the, the track, right? This is track five, Violet Monumental One. And I was wondering when he's going to wrap it up. It's like he's pulling a Beethoven. He does not know when to end this thing. And then I realized that I looked at the screen and we're already 15 seconds into, into track the next two. Track, yeah. So go figure. It, there's also a, a tone here that we get that I described as a mystery deep sound because we're not actually quite sure what's making the noise, but it it it, it has whatever it is. It rattles, it thumps, yeah. and it gurgles at times. I that's about as far as my description takes. Uh, but but what it, it does might have been it might have been bass clarinet. That was that was the closest descriptor we got. From yeah, that, I mean even if it's not theory. that. If you know what that sounds like, you can imagine this tone. But what Deeper was clarinet. I don't right. know if you don't know what a bass clarinet What's is. What's interesting is it felt like it created this kind of swirling void within the track. That because even though of, even okay. though we had the groove, this was stark enough that it it gave this kind of perspective on the track that I liked. Because of the volume control yeah. that was being Again. exhibited over it, it was it was coming forward and drawing back and coming forward and drawing back. Might have actually been in a very like safe oscillation that was just off from the beat we were getting. Well, I enjoyed the fact that it was very percussive, you know, yeah. which is interesting it to hear a, 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 a bass clarinet if we assume that's what it is to be in a, in a percussive environment. But like I said, it has those little pitch bends to it where it doesn't always stick the landing. It kind of like turns it turns its head upright at the yeah. tail end there. And it's it was a very engaging uh, component of, of the album, I thought, which doesn't really yeah. make an appearance in any other track, no. and I, I was most interested at this at this moment. The percussion was easily the most dynamic element. Well, yeah, um, I mean, for a lot of the rest of the track, for me, was not as memorable. It's a habit that I'm noticing on the album more and more. I'm remembering moments and specific sounds than entire tracks. I agree with that, and I have a separate problem as well. A problem of mine is actually the lack of endings on most of these uh, tracks. They like, just fluidly go from track to track. It's not even that, because you know, the transition itself is one thing. Yeah. But even the fact, like, I would like to feel some sense of not necessarily resolution. But, but completion, that we were, maybe? Completion, yeah. Kind of like wrapping up to say that that is the end of this particular everything, experience. Yeah, everything, the experience yeah. is bleeding together. Yeah. Which is, maybe, I think maybe that's how he wants it, but I, I believe it does come down to a narrative problem. I, I, I realize in all fairness that this music is not in, perhaps not intended for narrative, but merely just to exist. It just is. Perhaps it's just the ambient sounds of another dimension, and that's the dimension that is Tim Hecker's imagination. But I think your problem is contributing to mine. The fact that right. there's no clear ending is why I feel like I'm remembering moments versus tracks. But... That's where Do imaginations have endings. That's oh. where I, I actually got two arguments for that, and I was going to save it for the wrap up because I thought that was going to be our major point in the wrap up. I don't see much of this as being separate tracks. I mean, the way that everything seems to be bleeding together, at least every other ending bleeds directly into the next piece. 
So for the most part, I'm seeing this album as a cohesive unit. So it's a positive but, for you to see it as one giant piece of music. Yes. Could this be the first uh, the first thing we've ever come across that may have actually been composed as a single piece? Th- that's, Could be. I don't know if it's a definite, Not but that. I feel like it was composed as movements. And the movements weren't done track by track, but by grouping instead. Like three yeah. tracks at a time or four tracks. Because here, you said you don't really are seeing many endings, Well, Steve. it does throw back to Matt's idea. I, I do think that a lot of this was more an assemblage of ideas, and that's why Matt has the experience of remembering parts of tracks rather than remembering tracks as a whole. Like, the ideas, the individual things that we find in, like, certain timestamps, being like, that moment, that moment, these are the kind of things that he may have had in his mind before he started dividing them up and making titles. But I would say that... For the framework he's working in, the idea that there might be, you know, a a triple track kind of setup going on, or at least a dual track kind of setup going on, because you're talking a lot of like six to eight to ten minute chunks, not songs, but chunks coming together, then picking out individual moments of these chunks of songs feels like it should be more appropriate. It would be hard to really see... Uh, Violet Monumental 1 and 2 and remember the 10-ish minutes distinctly instead of the bits and pieces that were unique and the short-form ideas that were unique as opposed to the really the long-form melody approaches because there wasn't quite the same idea of melodies. But the melody approaches and the the rhythm approaches that are done here. It makes sense considering how free-form and how... I think there's very little arbitrary Honestly, that's going on right here. When you say, when you say approach that he approaches melody, I don't think he gets anywhere near as close to melody as you believe. In fact, I don't think I've heard much of a melody ever since the the quote unquote pan flute solo in track he one. He gives you the idea of a melody. No, here and I don't know. No, he's like, hey, this it's might more, be a it's melody more if I keep working on and it. And spotlight work. <laughs> I think it's more that. But anyway, the the final point that you said you don't feel like the endings are fulfilling specifically here. In part two, I remember distinctly feeling happy at the end of it. Distinctly coming away from this track All right, and I did, feeling uplifted by I it. I did get that. And yeah. if, if that is the ending you require, then I guess he did succeed. Because endings, I don't think we really, at this point, should expect finales on any of these tracks. I don't really think we should expect like crescendos or punctuations. I think just the overall impression is the only ending he's going for on these tracks. And be that as it may, though, that's, I think, whether it's intended or not, it's making it difficult for me to see the forest for the trees. That's all. Hmm. All right, it was nice to middle album muse. <laughs> anyway, why don't we... Ju- why nice don't- metaphor. I know it's a common one, but that was a great use of it. Track 7, Up Red Bull Creek. John's up that creek every day. So I was going <laughs> to drown it in, I think. <laughs> so I would say here's one of those few moments, though, where we do kind of get a stark difference because this track is mellower. It feels like it has a lower volume. You know, it feels relaxing pretty much from right out of the gate. But it doesn't necessarily just feel quieter, though. It doesn't feel like it's just low volume. It, it feels like a lot of the thickness and a lot of the oppression that's put in previous tracks just really isn't here anymore. This, this feels open. It's simply because there's nothing percussive. There's, like, no intrusive percussion cramping our style, I guess, or my <laughs> style, considering I seem to take some umbrage with it. But uh, later, it does get sharper, to go with John's earlier word, because the synthesizer returns, and mm-hmm. it just cuts right through. It's uh, 
I think maybe here organized enough to be a melody, and that's amidst everything else here, which is just a lot of like whirring. It's just it kind of has this little buffering nature to it, but it is much more delicate, which is why I would agree that it is the most peaceful track on the record. And I, I might identify it as relaxing personally because humming and like buzzing does relax me like it reminds me of being on a train or in a car when you're not driving and like the hum or vibration almost of being in movement a rocking almost and the that that major component of that that movement is that flutish oscillation that's going on it sounds like it's going more woodwind yeah quotes. more woodwind oriented but it just it has the texture i associate with flutes it's a nice warm feeling, and it's lazy. It's not quite peaceful or restful or anything like that. I think off air you use the word blasé. Yeah, blasé. Though we, we did a little bit of uh, the source work, and the word I want to use is ennui. It's got. <laughs> it's just. Which is not exactly the same, you know. Ennui is more of the if you're lazy and you're not taxed in any special way, then I suppose to be discontented. By actually being a little bit too satiated, that would be a form of ennui. Which I guess can overlap with being blasé, but it means you don't have the right to be depressed. That is what I associate ennui with. (laughs) And that's actually kind of how I want to describe this flutish instrument. It doesn't feel like it wants to commit to the track itself. And I like that it's being a little bit hesitant of that. I like that it doesn't, doesn't really want to do its work that it I feel it it might be obligated to do here in this piece. For frame of reference, people who are happily retired may be accused of having ennui when they're bored. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think why I like this track so much, especially comparatively to the other tracks, is because it kind of settles in a place and it's just there. It's very face value, which we really haven't gotten at all. There's kind of been no face value at all. But it doesn't care. It doesn't care if we if we, we think it's well, there. Because it has ennui. It, oh, it's, God. It's, no, this track is one of the few times where it's not really trying to trying to get to, to us. I don't think it's really trying to make us feel that oppressiveness like not really fearful or dreadful or anything like that but it's not trying to put the weight of our sh- of the world on our shoulders Which is in this what case. I like about it but I don't think it's the- doing that for us that's what I mean I don't think this track was made for us to have a relaxing moment I can't it even I like cannot even process today's level of BS to, right now I don't know how <laughs> I cannot even process it. essentially it's there but it does not care that it's there that's <laughs> why I want to use the word five stars that's five why stars. I want to be that's why <laughs> 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 and we've parodied ourselves. Track eight, castrati stack. I wonder what we'll be getting here. Actually, you, you hear vocals, but I would not call them castrati. No. Um, yeah, I heard mostly static. Uh, this is one of the most disconcerting tracks for me on the record. Because when there's no intrusive percussion, then there's intrusive static. And here, it really supplants the role of the way he likes to use percussion. It always seems to be there, maybe in a light film, but then it'll suddenly crackle and pop out at you with a lot of force as if someone's kind of like messing with the connector on the audio cable. At times, it actually bursts forth like an amplifier that's in overdrive, like the like the cone is going to just pop out at any moment. An actual moment when I was listening to this album on my old headphones, I was like, oh, are my headphones going? Like, it sounds that kind of physical a, static. Apparently, I say physical, ironically almost, because it is a digital Apparently, problem. John is that di- so disconnected from reality 
reality that he actually had to listen to it four times on separate sets of headphones before I, he realized. I thought my headphones, I was listening to it at work on headphones. I thought my headphones were breaking again. I thought I was going through another $5 pair of headphones of earbuds and I was going to have to throw them away. And when I got home, I realized that it was an intentional thing that I just had to keep listening to it over and over and just be like, yeah. that was weird and I like it. Well, let's focus because on that. I'm not, not going to deny. I, I did a double take, but it was more like a second before I'm like, yeah, that's the music. It's, <laughs> it's such a great thing going on right here, though. To have it being... No, no and here's my argument. Right, Having it be as as glitchy and as disturbed as it is on the electric side, the physical side of the voices that come out of it are, are directly vying against that electrical nature. It really is... Uh, the, the argument that this album, and this is my theory on the album, is the dichotomy between the physical and the digital, is between the actual real world and our computerized right. world. And I'm seeing it presented here in that combination we, between the two. We've had that dichotomy before in various other ways, although I am surprised yes. you went most of the, the episode here without saying the word glitch. I mean, if there was a... a, a a genre, I suppose, that I would place this in. I think that's what I would lean closer to. But sure. it does seem to be a more, like, acousticified glitch um, it has... because of those elements. But there's still a lot of electronic here. It's just it's easy to get... It's easy to forget that when you're in this wash of reverb. I mean, what's amazing to me is... So this track is also considered one of the singles, along with the final track on the record. And I don't know. Like, John's... I wouldn't say that John's narrative is far-fetched. I mean... By far, he's definitely come up with more far-fetched narratives Convictor. than this. Yes. Which I still stand behind. I know you do. I think it's also, I would add, that it's simply about uh, juxtaposition in many ways. Like, oh, you're all within the same track. You have the soothing vocals, but you have the really harsh uh, uh, audio bad connection sound. But then you also have the delicate ending. It's just interesting how he juxtaposes everything against the stuff that shocks you and also the stuff that, I guess, in some sense, satiates you. Yeah, I uh, don't But know. he doesn't want to leave you there for long. I he got just a similar wants you to take feeling you through in this the nature of it. I got a similar feeling in this track that I did to track one. I enjoyed track one more. Here, it just felt intrusive, almost unwelcome. Mm. Well, and certainly during those big, static cases. And I think that was the big problem for me is, you know, the, just the forcefulness of it felt unwelcome and put upon, and that was a problem for me. It's That's where I go back to the word arbitrary. I mean, I realize that's a tough word because there's all the things that I've said about this album that I believe were incredibly organized, mm -hmm. but I think that it is it is organized in a large scale. I think it, it really does lose something on the short term. Maybe, maybe that's just how he how he sees his art mm -hmm. is that from one moment to the next he likes to make you feel as if there is nothing logical about this about this work or about the world in general there is just what is happening but maybe you can make sense of a larger picture i mean considering the state of the world now i would believe there is no logic anymore so uh, well then again <laughs> we i mean everybody who is not believing the world. The people who believe in the world and what's going on are various organizations believe the world's logical and obvious things much happen and those of us who are sane don't. But I will say one thing. You track felt nine. like this was <laughs> intrusive and I'm going to go right into track nine right after this. You felt like it was intrusive. This Correct. track. Track to eight. Me. I think it was a setup for the trio tracks that we get right before Blackface, the final finale. Because voice crack, I don't think... And I know you guys don't, don't aren't aren't overly fond of it. Well, I don't think would have worked without a preceding track and without something to follow it up with. So, voice crack track nine is my favorite track on the album, 
And I know that that right there made Steve cringe the first time I said it. So, so here, here's the thing about voice crack. First, I don't know that I would completely agree or disagree with the point you're making about them needing to be connected. I'm still struggling with my place with this record, so I'll just let that point stand as it is. However, what I did like about the initial start of voice crack is that the synth here... If you could pluck a piano, which you can, technically, like, of course you can. You yeah. can pluck the strings, but like if you could pluck a synth keyboard, if synth had strings and you could pluck it, that's what the synth tones sound like to which me. Which there are obvious ways to like make it do that. It felt if you like shorten, you know, the length of the individual note, and you yeah. made it, you digitally made them so staccato they would essentially sound plucked. And that was one of my favorite effects on the whole record: is this idea of almost like you're playing the keyboard like it's a bass guitar and just. Shortly plucking the synth notes. It was just, I'm going a long way to describe just a really cool sound of synth tones that sound like a plucked bass line. It's yeah. essentially what it, it conveyed in the very beginning, which considering what we get later makes sense. But that isolated moment to be Steve for a minute was one of my favorite moments on the whole record because it just <laughs> was a cool feeling that I've never felt from electronic is- music that bordered on the physical. What a strange day. It's serious. You are focusing on the moments in an album where I'm I'm really lacking for moments in many ways. What was for me it was made more impactful and this is just just the final sentence on the previous track. It's because it led directly from the static that the, the previous, previous track dissolved yeah. into. It kind of coalesced out of it and that was one argument as to why I think the two need to be together. Well, let's talk about the elephant in the room. The thing that John mentioned that I guess I had a little bit of a, a cringe against, because I, tr- I, again, I try to be open-minded with this stuff, but if there's one thing, the, the creme de la creme of disjointed figures on this album, it would probably be the electric guitar that follows, which kind of takes up a huge bulk of this track. Mm-hmm. It, it, it seems like a prolonged solo. This is sort of what I was saying before about how uh, it is. It seems to be an improvisation, almost, but it seems to be an improvisation that lacks logic. And it's hard to really connect that to other things, except perhaps to the various other sections on this album that seem to follow that logic, meaning a, a logic of lacking logic. And the thing about it is it gradually gets louder and louder and more disjointed, and I just realized that, you know, giving it its due, I struggled with it. I, I tried to not just make sense of it, or even just to experience of I, I I could not find a silver lining to it. It seemed to be the most random and disjointed and, yes, perhaps arbitrary component of the album. One, because I'm going to be doing a lot of lists as to why. One... The guitar is not the first time we've had it on the album. In fact, it was used in specifically in the outro, Music of the Air Track 2, uh, as sort of a way to leave that track off. Sure, but it wasn't as stark as it is here. True. But it's also to playing off of that very complicated, dis- complicatedly described bass line you just had. It's working within the same sort of idea. And three, it's not random. It's not really all over the place or rambly. It does repeat. All right, there are sections that repeat. It's just... And, like, I'm aware of those sections. I'm not sure I found any real meaning behind them. And I know that's that's very probably going to vary from person to person. The What's going on with the guitar and, to some extent, with the bass line and the vocals that step in, I was... I was thoroughly intrigued and impressed with what wasn't being done. 
You mean the spaces in the between? The spaces in between everything that was going on? Well, because it, it very often th- sounds like each measure, it sounds like as he's playing, and you have all these, these groups of notes where you don't yeah. know where to expect one, it sounds like at any point he could just uh, fall off the face of the planet yes. and stop, stop playing entirely, but then you're waiting because you don't know when that next note is coming, right? Because there's nothing to even hint at you. And I, I would challenge you how many times you could listen to this, like, in replay before you actually come to know the the track and this section specifically as a whole and be able to pinpoint that. I, I would, I'm curious to, like, get a, a finite number on it. How many times? One... How many licks to get to the center of a tootsie roll? Tootsie pop. Tootsie pop. Yeah, you know, you know. Three, technically, from Al. Uh, he said it himself. I would say that you could do it on the first time or the thousandth time, but it would be just an eureka moment. Like that's something that you just would have to be able to like mentally count it out like right off hand like off the cuff but that to me is why i truly love this track every time even though i know exactly what to expect it's unexpected i cannot predict it i cannot predict those moments of silence i cannot predict those breaks with enough clarity you know what to be nothing but impressed by how it is for once for once on this podcast i i think that i disagree with you entirely but I think I completely respect and see 100% where you're coming from because I can, I, I can hear my own voice and I have made this argument. I like things that reveal something new each and every time. And this one, from my view, would seem to amount to infinity. Like, well, <laughs> it's because in a lot of ways it's almost a representation of chaos, of, of how just congested with randomness it seems to be. To, you, it, it's hard to get anything out of chaos. And like you, you look at... But yeah, like, yeah, there's something compelling to understand it. Yeah. Yeah, I get that a lot. Something that I just want to say before we wrap up on this track that will both support John, but also back up my and Steve's dislike for the guitar here, is the guitar feels out of place to me because it reminds me of another electronic artist that we are all familiar with. In moments, the guitar tones feel like something exactly that Daft Punk would do. In specific moments and notes, it definitely feels like a tone that I would hear in a Daft Punk record, almost even poppy in very small moments. Yeah, How- it's one another interpretation of it. You can almost see it as like something that was a lot more formed and structured, but then got spliced up beyond recognition. But that's said, that supports my feeling of how it doesn't belong and feels unnecessary. However, it also supports John's, you know, form discussion and how it does repeat on itself and have this kind of almost structure to it. I think that exact reason and that association for me, as well as how it comes through in the track, is exactly why I don't like it. But I get Again, it brings me to a place where Steve is, where I can understand where you're coming from. You don't like it, but you respect it. I'm getting at least a little bit of respect for the track. Yeah, I mean, well, look. That's, that was my phrase. I don't yeah, know okay. Matt is going that as That's far as I'm, I, no, as I'm, I just I'm went. I'm specifically posing that question. Do you understand why I yeah, find it? absolutely. Okay. I understand just the artistry don't agree I at all okay. in the slightest. I, I, I've done that a couple of times, especially with the weird stuff Steve brings on, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> all right, let's go to track 10, Collapse Sonata. Um, yeah, Collapse Sonata. I mean, to be fair, it's not as if the uh, it's not as if voice crack completely ended with that wonky guitar solo, no, although no, no. it was clearly the most interesting feature. I mean, it did do some other things the later big, on. An impression on it. Um, like, for instance, around a minute, 30 seconds, there seemed to be more, like, shifting focus between the left ear. Like, kind of, I felt like there was a tape there being played in fast forward in tandem with these sweeping 
backing vocals in the background, which then gradually edge closer to the right ear, and then the tape thing just collapses entirely and you're left in this haze. So once again, the grand scale of this track, I think I kind of like how it flowed, and that was just one component, and it just like I said about the, the clanking from track one, there always seems to be this one component that is just this, this guy in the room who you just love to hate. Or nails on a chalkboard. There you go. So yeah, track 10, Collapse Sonata. Here you're back to kind of the same pulse we had a few tracks ago, but then at 18 seconds in, there's this high-pitched screech, which is actually the same synth that we heard earlier, but it's 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 blared this time, much, much louder, and even though it goes to a more delicate section afterwards, that initial burst filled me with some long overdue chills, which I think gave me the moment that I so sorely needed on this album, and I got it here, right after, you know, ranting my ass off in the last track. <laughs> Well, the the bright tones that are almost recognizable in a lot of other tracks, like you said, this feels a little bit more intelligent. It feels a little bit more like it's got some ego to it, like it knows what it's doing. It's not just a random up and down scale. It feels like it's it's a becoming a character in and of itself. And then it starts going through a loop. Well, yeah, I, that was that was another thing. A fairly complicated loop. It loses a lot of the piece as it goes into that that loop. As it subtly shifts the volume and a lot more weight gets thrown into this piece. This one is this track starts going through a lot of the tricks that we've gotten on the album. But I feel like in a lot of ways it's portraying them best. Though in a, it's not really anything new. It's just the best of the old. Well, yeah. I think what's interesting here is that I'm getting more of a sense of what he does on a, a larger scale in this track than I got anywhere else. I think also that loop that you're talking about is it speeds up in a way that it almost gets unnerving, like a record played backwards or skipping or something. Yeah, that's where it starts losing the, the peacefulness that I was coming to associate with it. And what's really interesting is that after that moment, Everything drops out. The pulse, everything. This is like 2 minutes, 27 seconds. And then we just get kind of this weird drone effect that perpetuates. And it, it that makes it more unnerving because it's it's almost like a tape skipping or looping and then breaks. It's, that it's may have been the starkest like, cut that I've experienced yeah. in the history of this podcast because I yeah. didn't see it coming a mile away. Me neither. I expected it to loop and then get wacky and distorted and it yeah. really didn't do anything. It's, it's like he almost, just picked a random point to splice the clip. Yeah. It, it, that, it almost feels like it's from Track 4 Live leak instrumental mm -hmm. with that kind of death knell but it was a long drawn out version of that like a true ringing out death knell of something or another if it's uh, if, if something died it was those bright tones right and then it gets all kinds of screwed up with almost like a childlike glee all warbled and distorted, but it I feels so... I don't know if there's that feels, much glee about this album. <laughs> it feels like it's rejoicing about something, though. If this, this tone that comes in, I don't know if rejoicing it's... Rejoicing about its very collapse. Ah, now we can use Ennui. It's not... Holy. This is, this is definitely a darker element... That's shown up a few times in the album, but it, it's it's definitely on the negative and the more oppressive and thicker side that we've that we keep trying to explain. It feels like it's that you know. I feel like this is hinting at that, but it's the final track that when we get to it, really kind of hones that. Yeah. Because I feel like here, they're kind of alluding to it, foreshadowing, if you will, which we got earlier in the record, too. Because yeah. if this is childlike 
Glee. This is Stephen King's childlike like Glee. Glee. All right, this is or, the twins going down the hallway. Or Five unicy- Nights at Freddy's and yeah, creepy that's animatronics. I mean, the and, end of this got seriously demented. You know, yeah. it's not oh, as, it's not as if the second that we experience that 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 harsh cut and everything drops out, that oh, we just coast peacefully no. to the end. No. Instead, it Even starts. It very much unravels. Yeah. It, it does collapse it in ends. on itself, and it's from th- about three minutes, fifteen seconds on. It is extremely demented. It felt at this point that this was more meant for a film. Uh, yeah, I kept saying David Lynch before. Like, yeah, this and, re- yeah, and I could totally see no this better in, in Twin Peaks or or anything that's kind of just bizarre all the time. Yeah, um, but the final track, Black Phase, which is also a single apparently, which is also directly led in from the previous track, f- feels the most composed. Not like composition wise, but feels the most has the most composure, like the most yes. put together. And just absolutely dark and ominous, like there is impending doom coming towards us. Well, that this e- is this is the way I saw it. It starts off with the high pitched drone, which is very consonant. Like you said, it's also very composed. Uh, little shades of dissonance are added, but you can almost start to see the resolution at the end of the tunnel, uh, the very long and dark tunnel that is this 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 monster that is Black Phase, because it's uh, six minutes and sixteen seconds. It's I think believe the longest track on the album. It right? is yes, and yeah, it feels like you can get the sense that things are resolving, but that it will not be a clean resolve. Yeah, it kind of drags itself, you know, but not in a way that, like, the track drags on. It just feels like it's, you know, slumped, dragging its hands along the yeah. ground. Like, this like everything of... has been predestined almost at this point. But, you know, it, it begins to unravel, too, in a way, even with those deep tones, that it, it does feel like it's perpetuating a feeling or a collapse that track 10 did allude to, like John said. Like, you were really getting it, I think, focused in here, which is why I think this is also still one of the strongest tracks because it gives me a legit sense of dread when I listen to it. Like It's almost the, like the Swamp Thing showing up or something like that. Something coming out of the... the beast from the lagoon. Yeah. I, I did get a sense when I heard those, those like, guitar drones, the, the overbearing, you know, mm-hmm. they, they crash down. It's very ominous, and I felt like I was being led up the river sticks. Yeah. Like it toad. Was, like, nothing good is coming of yes. this. But it, you have a few, you know, moments left. And it was also a final track. It, it did have a finale quality to it. It felt like a curtain closing on top of all this buildup of dread and sort of personification of, I guess, maliciousness or even evil in some ways, at least to my ears. It did feel like, I, I wouldn't say a closing scene or specifically like it has to be connected to something, but it feels like this story actually is reaching a finale, a, a resolution. climax, a, a resolution, yeah. But the thing that's interesting here is that the resolution falls in this weird place for me because I don't know that I had anything for it to resolve. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> and that's where I'm kind of struggling with this, with the record as a whole. I do agree, though, that this trifecta of tracks, 9, 10, and 11, and you said even 8 a little bit for me, they do feel really connected as... The, the first half of the record, I kind of felt like I was spinning in place a little bit. I guess this is a good point, place to start our wrap-up, and I'll go first. Um, though I have trepidation about actually going first. Um, just just take the heat. Yeah, I'll just take it. Um, and I could be really way off this time. I don't know. So here's the thing. It's no secret that I like to, to pinpoint emotional connections to songs. And when I'm lacking that, I 
often am very harsh and saying, oh, well, there's no emotional connection, so this sucks, which I'm kind of characterizing myself, even though I've not actually said those words. Here, the kind of obscured and bizarre connection to the songs, I think, fuel the record. But I don't know that this is a, a record where it benefits from that. I'm coming from a very Steve place, and I don't want to be overly harsh on the album, but I am, like, because what we talked about earlier where the tracks really do blend together pretty closely, and it does feel like one giant cohesive piece, that's a positive for unity of the record. And so I can't fault it for that, but it does make me struggle personally to say, I love that track. Like, towards the end of the album, I definitely get a stronger sense of that. 9, 10, and 11, I do remember, because moment to moment there were so many strung together moments, I do remember those tracks really well. But the beginning part of the album is a mishmash for me. Like, it all just bleeds together. And it's not for lack of talent or skill or instrumentation or interesting things going on. It's just because this is designed in a way that I believe it's meant to flow from track to track. I get lost in that flow. Um, and then we talk about the talent of the, the artist in general. I mean, Tim Hecker clearly has a skill for what he's doing. None of this feels... Even though there are moments that feel arbitrary, I don't feel like the album itself is arbitrary. I don't think he just went, whatever. Like, that's definitely not the case. But I just don't know if there's a... Th I don't have that aha moment, like John was saying, that he he has gotten, but hasn't gotten everywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm struggling to have any aha moment on an album scale at all. Um, as far as narrative goes, I got nothing. Like, the things that John said, which also seem bizarro, I'm willing to latch on to just because I literally got nothing. <laughs> and and Thank that, you. And that, while is a compliment to John, is not a compliment to the record. I feel like even if the artistic intent is for me to feel nebulous and lost, which it could be, I don't like being there with this record. Um, I'm just confused a lot of the time. And we've done some more difficult pieces, which is what really has me baffled. Like, you know, Yugen. I didn't know what the hell to do with Yugen. But I at least... You know, we had some good discussions in you. We had some great discussions, and I felt like I was at least getting somewhere with it. Here, I feel like I've been running in place for most of the record. Um, but I don't want to tank it for that, because I don't think it's a... Instrumentally, I don't think it's a poor work. Um, I just think that I'm kind of confused, so, you know, it's 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 got to be... It's not in the upper echelon. I, I think I'm somewhere around a 3.8 with this. I feel like it's appro approaching upper echelon in the things it's trying to do, because it's using volume in a unique way. It's completely cohesive is how it melds. I think it's because the entry point is so obscured here, is I'm kind of just at a loss. And so I have to hurt it for that because I don't need clear narratives spelled out for me, but I got you got to give me something. Here. It's almost like you like the first few chapters of the book was in a foreign language and then all of a sudden they lived happily ever after kind of a thing. Yeah. It's like if a clockwork orange was not just in slang, but in slang and another language and several different languages. And I love a clockwork orange, but that book was tough to get through the first time. You know, but upon repetition, you find the things. You see the forest for the trees, and you really get the narrative. And it's a brilliantly written book. But if you don't put in the work, you can't get there. If you don't have the slang dictionary, Right, but you're even lost. more importantly, <laughs> if it were in another language and several languages, then it would be, it could be an impossible task, especially pre-internet. So the question is, is this in another language? Um, 
it has enough familiarity to it that I'm not willing to put it there. Right. I'm so, I'm not saying that it's like exactly that, but it's kind of where my head is at, sort of. I'm just I'm just mulling. Um, I think that there were definitely moments, and not too many like individual moments, but there were definitely some moments in this album where I toyed with the idea of throwing it way up there, mm-hmm. right? Just based on some of the things that he does. I do find a consistency. I find all of the same consistencies that you do. The way he plays around with volume. All that stuff is, that is a tool that he's very consistent with how he uses it throughout the work. There's some talent in that. That's what I largely laud composers for. Their ability to, to integrate unique ideas and create a logic to, about it. Which is pretty interesting considering that that's largely been my critique here. Like, that there was very little logic. But if they, all that he's doing is really just focusing his logic in different places some extremely unexpected places things that actually are more overlooked i would say in the vast majority of works like all things considered i don't think people really focus on volume that much you know let's face it those riaa standards the byproduct is that a lot of music can end up feeling a little bit samey and be beyond any standards that are out there because of course you can pay attention to that stuff or you or you don't have to depending upon how independent your publisher is but the fact of the matter is also i believe the more the world is being connected i think a lot of times the byproduct of that is that it doesn't you don't there doesn't have to be a standard i think we are just in general starting to think more similar to one another it's not true in all facets of culture for sure but i think that music is like like, far ahead of the curve in that, because it was just so widely spread. And I think that that has been accused of being both a, a, a really good thing and a really bad thing. People get into other genres. We already, we don't really know where to place this. It's sure it's electronic, but it also, like, electronic artists tend to be the most diverse and have the most diverse libraries. Maybe just the, the idea that they want to be an in, in electronic artist comes out of this idea that you can be on the peripheral and you don't really have to, like, bend your will to anyone. Mm-hmm. I think that there's, again, a lot of respect there. And I feel this guy's uniqueness against the batch. I feel it in terms of volume. I feel it in terms of the way he plays around with expectations and the way he plays around with uh, the spotlighting thing. Uh, there's really very little structure to an individual track, right? But there is structure to, let's say, the instruments that he gives prominence and that he may rework them later, maybe not necessarily even in that track, but later in the album itself. It is a very, very, very loose logical structure, one that I'm not even sure is there. <laughs> That's the tough thing about this record, is sometimes this this is one where I feel like I'm right on the edge of being able to say, like, am I just am I just putting all this on? Like, am I just, if, if I feel it, am I, is it my instinct to to make it up on the spot? Or was that really an intention? Does, does it even come down to intention at the end? Does it just matter about what your feelings are? Because right. if it comes down to your feelings are, then we have to go right back to, to the beginning and rate, as Matt always says, on emotion and emotion only. And sometimes, especially in these cases, that may be your only recourse. And I think that may actually be where I have to go here. Uh, my problem is the lack of aha moments. There are a few. Track one, I honestly think, peaked. I really do. 
track one had the aha moments. They occurred with the pan flute solo, right? And I loved it. I thought it was beautiful, and I wanted that in the rest of the album. I wanted another reoccurrence of that in different ways. And you do have the woodwinds, so you have that as a through line. I love the bass clarinet. I don't know if that's aha, but it was very interesting. I love the violet monumental uh, pair. I love those two as an, artic- as an artistic piece, but within them, I'm hard-pressed for moments. And I guess it does come down to moments in the end. Sometimes those are the things that I think can really, I guess, prove to me pure inspiration rather than just implying inspiration as this album does. And for that, I'm definitely sitting somewhere in the threes. It, it, go- it, it really says a lot that on one hand, I was inspired to throw this album up to the upper echelon of the high fours based on something particularly brilliant that he did, but then on the opposite end of the spectrum, I also felt the same aimlessness that I felt back in another one of John's picks, Deep Chord. A Deep Mm. Chord I apologized for. Yeah, several times it's still not enough. Keep apologizing. Anyway, Steve, where are you at then? Because you teased the threes. Let's, Let's put a hard stamp on it. All right, I'll add one more point, and this will bring me to my rating. Albums like this, more than any other album or any other type of album, really, really make our the way we rate kind of challenging and how we yes. rate next to other pop artists, I for would instance. I agree. Right? Absolutely. Because then I think about those pop artists and I think about the things that are so different from this, like fundamentally. Yeah. And, I, and I, I just look at a completely different spectrum of like how I would rate and how I would say like yeah well they're not stepping outside structure right but hell at least that was a really good melody right there and I find that my list of, of pros and cons may be actually the same length right but they're just completely different pros and cons I think sometimes you have to rate in a vacuum and it's hard it's really hard to rate in a vacuum and we try not to also yet we do so I think you this is all valid for sure but stop stalling and give us a rating I'm going to throw this at a 3.75. Okay. There's there's enough Reasonable. artistic integrity here that yeah. it has to it has to be close it's to above four average for, me. for sure, yeah. No, I agree. I looked at this album the way I guess we rarely get the opportunity to. Like like Steve said that checklist changes. What's the pros? What's are the, what's the cons and how do you rate them against one Con. another when you're I'm sorry. <laughs> when, when you're going that. from a completely different like artistic choice how can you say well how can Iggy be compared to this no sure of course how can you know Steam Powered Giraffe be compared to this it's hard to make those comparisons because they're approaching it at a very different point of view it's like comparing apples and chairs and we actually keep our integrity that no we should rate because I we believe all music should be on the same level in some way because yeah. your end takeaway how many times you go back to it that will still be the same yeah. that will be the, the deciding factor in many ways but then we also have to factor in the uh, the art that may not end us up in one place or the other right this is John's monologue <laughs> <laughs> well Mr. Hecker actually kind of he I found an interview in Rolling Stone where he says I think the best way I guess to to summarize how this music should be approached. I think the risk of doing digital audio in this time is, like, when does technology become like shitty CGI? When does it become Mm. like Michael Bay Transformers of sound? Mm. And that visual that's going on right there, like, when does the, the idea of this digital audio system we have in existence right now become just wrote simple explosions and things like that when is it just you fit a formula well here what the artist is doing is 
constantly challenging me to keep listening to his music. And that is something I can't help but respect. And in in this case, I can't help but really enjoy it at its core. I don't know if this is a great album or a good album or even a bad album, really. Because it's not just an emotional album for me. In fact, it's not even close to being an emotional album for me. I can't go with my gut because here I'm relying too heavily on my on my thoughts about the album, on my dissection of the album, on the intellect associated with the album. The, the, the mental capacity I'm trying to work up to, to, to explain these parts and to try to experience it and to pin down the patterns is what's so great about this album for me. It is every challenge to the norm he could come up with. And I have to respect that. And I have to laud that because that is going in the face of music in every possible way you can come up with. So for that, I just I just want to thank him because that is he does everything he possibly can to not be popular, to not be mainstream. Well, well nobody wants to be the Michael Bay of anything, so that's fair. <laughs> but it's it's that mentality that I think also allows the album itself to remain cohesive. And I could attribute a ton of different stories. I already started a few, and I could make a couple more that would explain this album. But I would rather somebody else come up with their own explanation in this case. I don't want. You don't want to paint the picture for someone. Yes, I don't want a story here. There's just associations I made to one emotion or to one scene or to one idea. And for me, that is all I ever want somebody to get from me. I'd rather somebody get it from themselves on this sort of an album. Maybe not this guy specifically, maybe not this album specifically, but this type of music, it being a challenge, it making you go... I don't know if that was music, but it sounded good. Or uh, that sounded good, but I'm not sure it's music. Like, that is a interesting kind of place to come from mentally. I think before you wrap up, I think that's why I'm rating it the way it is. Because there are moments where I want David Lynch to confuse the crap out of me. And I'm using him as an example because I just did a, um, a burlesque show with Francine the Lucid Dream about Mulholland Drive who does lots of David Lynch stuff. I think sometimes I want David Lynch to confuse the hell out of me and I need to figure it out on my own. Sometimes I want to watch David Lynch and someone else to tell me what the hell is going on so I understand (laughs) it. I think that's my struggle here is here I want it explained to me as simplistically as possible as if I were a child. I didn't I didn't want to work First this hard. First we take beat. Right. Then we take music and but, put but, on beat. But you're coming from a place where you enjoyed the work and I don't think I did and I think that's where the disparity is. Yeah, it's like when you start going in Wikipedia and you start clicking too many links and you get to pages where you just don't have the background to understand the metaphysics yeah. or the, you know, year 19 calculus that is going on right there like there's symbols that don't even exist in the I'll world outside this music this, yeah. this album is either under me and below me or completely over my head it could I, be either. I, I wish on a daily basis you know that we I guess had the format or perhaps in a future series or other component that we had the format to study things that were like let's say out around the turn of the century yeah. things that were avant-garde for like the year 1900 1905 that it seems so long ago today that we would j- just assume, I guess, be having the 21st century ego that we have, yeah. that it is, oh, it's in the past. It can't nearly be as complicated, you know, as anything that's going on now. And that is just not true yeah. at all. <laughs> and yeah. and that, it's for that reason that I want to, like, 
I guess, analyze that and compare that stuff against the day. Yeah. But we also have our thing where we frequently fall into the traps where it's like, oh, well, it's of the time. Yeah. But I believe that there's an it factor that transcends all of those those criteria. And I wish that we could look at it. I really do. Because I wish you could explain to me, you know, in your wrap-up right there, John, as to why I rated Yugen a 4.8 and why this is almost a full point below. I don't know. Can you explain that? No, I couldn't. Okay. Well, I then really can't. at least tell but us what you, I, where you I, I guess I just thought I that it was equally as, as bizarre and obscure and most people would probably hate it, but I felt that was just a, a more brilliant work. I felt more work I went into Yugen it. I think Yugen was better. I do. I'm, I'm with you on that. I still think Yugen was better. Yeah. This is in the four range, but it's still not a high four. This is a 4.2. It's, okay. it's just in it's it's in the upper four range. I would like more cohesion in certain aspects of it, or maybe even less cohesion, because some of the things that he does, like with the auto-tuned voices that come through, they get they're the they're being auto-tuned, and they're, they're in, the, yet the antithesis of auto-tune. They are disconcerting at times when auto-tune is supposed to be nice and level and go from note here to dear, right on a dime and everything like that, yet they're broken up. Or the standard beat is nice and broken up. Like, he's, he's spit in the face of so many different norms. But at the same time, there's a, like, like Matt said, there's a little bit of a hard investment in the beginning. I, I kind of started getting it right with Music of the Air, but uh, Obsidian or Dream, it wasn't really until about halfway through Live Leak Instrumental that I was really into this album, that I was full-fledged, oh, I'm done, it's invested, I'm going to, at minimal, enjoy this album, maximum I'll fall in love with it, but it didn't quite get there. So for all the intellectual stimuli, I mean, I got invested really early. I was getting maybe not an emotional connection, but more of an ego id connection, I guess. Like the the, the subconscious was going for it. So yeah, four point two. I'll swing that into a compliment. You know, I I think that uh, Tim Hecker has the right idea. Yeah. I just don't think I'm in his dimension. Yeah. But I think he's an ace in his dimension. Yeah, I think so too. I would. I actually like that analysis of it. Getting a little timey-wimey. I appreciate That's right. that. <laughs> That's right. When in doubt, they're in a separate dimension. I, th- I, I think they're brilliant there. It's an alternate universe. There Different timeline. There you go. Evil um, Spock? Sure. Okay. What's our topic, John? Today's topic, which is kind of like the opposite of other topics we've done. We've talked about how we make music fit a setting like some things are just meant for parties and some things are meant for drives and some things are meant for intellectual expansion but sometimes there's music that you know and love and when it comes on well it doesn't matter what the setting is you got to listen to this track so sometimes you got to change the setting to fit the music whether it be you're going to, you know, lower the lights or go get yourself a beer or you're going to definitely need a smoke because that's your hype-up song afterwards and you're going to need to come back down. Sometimes the music is more important than just where you are, so you have to make where you are conform. Sure. I mean, this is also kind of a roundabout way of saying, you know, having a home entertainment center, while it's not really a necessity anymore, the idea that you need a stereo and a computer and a TV and a, v- a video game system, like all of that stuff is more and more combining with every day. I think that the right, um, you know, ambiance for certain music is super important. I feel like, you know, um, for example, for me, I listen to a lot of music either on headphones or on my Bose speakers on my computer. I don't really have a stereo anymore. But I, I, 
I think certain music definitely benefits from the setup of a certain room. I don't personally have it right now. And what I would love if I had a home, a music listening room or a recording studio, sure. And that's a, a pipe dream for when I have that space. But, you know, I think that there is definitely an importance to creating a space for listening to music. You know, that brings to mind uh, actually something that was fairly recent. You know, Music A to Z podcast, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've uh, had Our some dealings with them. brothers in Canada. That's right. They have, they did this episode where it was the two of them, Steve and Doug, as well as like three other guests, and they all went through their favorite albums mm-hmm. of all time. It was it was like five each. It was like 25 albums total. They also asked the three of us to contribute. They read the comments at the end. And I remember listening to, to that episode, and one of them mentioned this thing about the band Interpol. And I, I was my, I'm a big fan of the band Interpol, and I forget exactly which album he put uh, up near the top. I think it was actually the, the debut album, Turn On The Bright Lights. Um, and he went into this tirade about how Interpol has a lot, of, a lot of things going for it, except that they're a really difficult band to show people. And it has to do with the way they sound on speakers. Um, the problem is they're just the way they're mixed sh- sounds kind of shitty on most speakers. Does that fault like everything that they do? Does that fault every single thing that they release? Do you just have to say, eh, it's a shitty band? Like you can't boil it down to that. Right. But also, I realize that if you're going from like from an entertainment center to the car to this pair of headphones to that pair of headphones and you're not finding anything one wonders whether more should have been considered in the mixing but it could also mean that Interpol is a band that you actually have to have the physical closeness of the earbuds in your ear or the headphones around on top of them. Yeah, and, and I have the same experience with uh, classical music all the time. Also, needs to be pretty close, pretty intimate. You can't just you like passively listen physical, to those things. Just that, that mental idea of it physically pl- pressing exactly. up against your head adds to the music experience. And that's exactly what I'm going for with this discussion. Um, I was listening to a bunch of music because they finally made Pandora accessible while playing video games on Xbox. I was so happy. I <laughs> so was so happy. Passive listening. So I kick. actually no. I usually cut passive off. gaming while listening actively. Yeah, it's like oh, well. I was. I ended up shooting to the beat of another one bites the dust. It was freaking <laughs> awesome. Um, but I was flipping through like a dozen different video games while listening to Queen. Yeah. Instead of trying to find the right music for the video game I was listening to. Sure. Because when when another one bites the dust came on, I was like, all right, no, I can't play Minecraft. You can't play Minecraft in a game like that. <laughs> yeah. It just doesn't fit the idea. So I loaded up a shooter and I was like, okay, obviously, this is what pairs with Queen. Like, and there's certain, there's certain, like, I've had a couple of bands that are just like, uh, I got to listen to it on radio or stereo or something like that. Because bands that I love to belt out, or Weezer, perfect example of a band I love just belting out and singing along to the big, loud lyrics of it, is best for my radio work, well, for my stereo work. It sounds like that would be the equivalent of, let's say, simply listening in the car. You know, yeah. you listen to the car, you're doing something passive, but you really listen, you end up listening to the music more. It's not a completely, like, hyper-immersive experience, right. as, for instance, like, no one's around, it's you and your headphones, which I think is what we end up sometimes doing a little... Perhaps a little too much, maybe, on this podcast, 
guess? Like, it, it's what it's what should be done. It's what should be done when you really want to consider a work. But right. it, you can end up being hypercritical in those environments. Yeah. Which I think a good workaround is to do something passive while listening, because then it might be more of an ins- you might get more of an instinctual reaction as a result. Like, you have to trust your own instincts first, but it, bef- but once that's done, then you can go out, have a nice little drive, and then kind of take into account how the music washed over you after the fact, and it'll be a pretty good indicator as to whether you liked it or not. As opposed to the fallacy, let's say, of listening too hyper-focused, where maybe your 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 instinct is to be critical, right? Which is a fallacy in itself. Or the opposite, where you're actually trying to do work. You right. know, I, a lot of people do that. I don't know how the hell they do it. You know, they try to write papers or something like that while they're listening to music. You're not getting any... Any, you can't really be getting music listening done, or maybe even really getting work done. I don't know. I can. I was never able to do it personally. Well, I think well, I can. I think it's you want to focus on the work, and the noise around you is more distracting than the music. Because if you're familiar with the music, it just kind of washes over you. And not new music. So like, I'll do it with playlists that I made years ago that I've had forever that I know track by track and I know all the songs I'll put that on and then do work because it's just noise to drown out the planet essentially well, I find very often if I like the music too much then it's distracting and yeah. I would See, I would not... rather enjoy right <laughs> and I, then I don't do my work <laughs> but there are some like like sometimes that that sort of music the music you like music you love music you truly want to get into that's when you got to start you know lying down closing your eyes and just letting it drift over you that you have no real choice for something. or at least personally that's how I can I can only listen to certain albums or certain bands that way like the hazards of love which thank you Steve you got me into that this band. yeah I'm still thanking you for that one um, I can only listen to that album two ways when I'm showing it to someone or when I'm lying in bed getting ready for bed getting ready to fall asleep I mm. put it on my headphones and I just enjoy that because that's an album I don't feel like I'm giving it the due respect I, it really deserves unless I'm focusing completely on it right or, well I think that's a more interesting facet of this discussion actually is the physical spaces I mean just forgetting about what you're doing at the time I'm not really talking about like it, passive listening but it, there are there places environments rooms times of day that you're more likely to get certain degrees of listening done that's I think more what I, I think was implied by listening habits well yeah and for me like I remember fondly growing up and you both have been there so you know the space I'm talking about well, my parents living room at their old house in Staten Island had this great long couch a huge room a, a wooden buffet where the stereo system was located and the speakers on opposite sides of the room upstairs or down downstairs oh that one yeah and i loved listening to music there if my parents weren't home because otherwise if they were home they would either give me a hard time or have to use headphones because i love those speakers specifically i would let rock and roll just bellow through that room my fondest moment is it's still rock and roll to me by billy joel in that living room just hanging out and listening to it. It had that gr- the rumble of the dun 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 just yeah. echoed through the room, and it was a great space for that kind of rock and roll music. Well, the, the rooms space are just more acoustically prepared. Yeah, the, the the room you're talking about specifically is a little bit short on the roof side. Yeah. It has that nice deep carpet to mm-hmm. muffle a lot of the the echoes that would make it a little bit too much. But I could definitely see the hard edges in there working really well with a solid drum line from like Pink Floyd. Or something like that. It was yeah. just a really great space also because it's the living room I grew up in. Like, I lived in that house since I was three until I was, you know, you know, in college. And so 
there's that familiarity and then putting on music that I think I attribute my dad to getting me into like Motown and classic rock and so I think that mix in that space was why I liked that kind of music there. I, I do confess I, I wish that I had more opportunities to listen to music aloud you know not doing mm. that much driving recently um, you live in the city you don't necessarily have to yeah. so it's not always possible but also like you know what is younger alright of course parents the they're out, yeah, yeah, absolutely, you blast the stereo. But as I get older, I just find myself more naturally wanting to, you know, put headphones in, I yeah. guess, just because I feel that I, I can be prepared to isolate the world, like, on a moment's notice, whereas you can be very starkly interrupted when we you're blaring music. We also live in an isolating music. world now. Like, if you look around on a train, everyone's People's, in their phone, yeah. headphones, like, that's kind of the nature. Which we, is a shame, though, and I, I wish it weren't that way, but too. I find myself falling easily into that trap. Like, for instance, since the ideal version of this podcast for me is where, you know, we try to get a little bit of that, of the balance between the two, but my ideal version would be where you actually get a version done in the car, a version done in your headphones, yeah. and blasting on your stereo in the room, maybe in another room, you're right? Yeah. And where those were your comprehensive listens for all three of us before we go in to talk about the album. And unfortunately, that's not the case. And especially for an album like today, where you feel like certain things really do need to be set up, maybe even like... Uh, certain emotional states need to be achieved first for it to work to its uh, to the artist's advantage, um, and also that's another thing. Time of day. D do you find that there are just times of day where you are more inclined to pop in headphones? Well, I'll also admit openly that most of the time the only I'll admit openly the only time I really listen to music aloud over speakers anymore without a stereo is when we listen before the show. That's really it. Most wow. of the time, it's in headphones these days, or in my car. But like sometimes, I just take a, a ride for for the hell of it, and but, then I'll get a good. But listen. living in Brooklyn and commuting to, by train more and more, and not driving as much, it's mostly just when we listen together. Yeah. And it's you know, unfortunate. You want to sacrifice your parking spot? I mean, obviously. right? Exactly. But at the same time, like you still gotta you gotta look for new ways then to actually keep personalizing your musical experience. Because you can listen to any sort of thing on, on your headphones and not really disturb anybody like that. But I still find myself... Yeah, find new ways. Get a chip in your head. Well, it's, it's also, <laughs> no, I think no. that's part of the problem is there's not a lot of physical media anymore or as much. Like, who uses a boombox anymore? I'm tethered to my computer or my iPod. There's no, like, go-between. Well, it's not like a boombox was ever, like, a real prime, you know, <laughs> a prime cut way but to listen to But they were traveling speakers. True. And they, they had their own... I guess, distinctive flair. Right, but like now they don't make iPod stereos, like a stereo that's an iPod, although they may. It was often to the chagrin, though, of everyone else around the boot box right, who yeah. was not enjoying their company. Right. But, I mean, how do, you, how do you still keep making the places of your music, whether you're on the train or, or in your house or in the car or in public or private, either side of this argument, how do you still keep your music yours? Because everybody still listens to their music, and it is their music, their own personal soundtrack. They're going to have their headphones on, or even they're going to be humming along a tune or something like that. You still will notice people will have their habits, like there's certain songs that you have to hum along to, or sing along to, or whistle along to. And even if they don't realize it consciously, subconsciously, there's, there, you're going to see that person, you know, maybe mouthing a few lines from a popular pop song that they are just thoroughly enjoying at that particular moment. These sort of habits, yeah, we're losing some of them. Because a lot of the social aspect of music is being lost. 
And I guess that's what I was trying to uh, discover in this discussion today. What are the social aspects that we can still do? The physical spaces where you listen well, to music. We, we, did have a, we did have a very music. interesting discussion just last week, in fact, uh, with Fisk um, yeah. about how, you know, the the live scene is not not exactly what it used to be, only yeah. because yeah. of the difference between how, all right, some people, they go out and they want to listen to music with their friends, but then it becomes a very, like, hyper-focused thing, be like, you're going to a venue and you need to plan in advance and it's probably going to be expensive tickets if you're here in the city. And then there's also the opposite of... Uh, live acts that aren't as appreciated because they occur in bars where people really just want to have a conversation. And that often, I think, causes problems where people don't have the instinct to just go out and and want to listen to live music on a kind of ad hoc nature. But there is an in-between for that that me and Steve has experienced recently and they've been doing for a long time, and that's listening parties. Listening parties mm. for albums is a, is based on a space. When I hosted the um, Tower Music release party... It was a listening party. We listened to all the tracks, not in their entirety, but we did. And there's something about being in the way station in a physical space that I am familiar with, with an album that I really enjoy, and an artist that I like and I've spoken to before that added this kind of extra level to music, that music specifically, which I think is kind of what John's trying to get to. And that's a very old tradition, by the way. That goes back to, like, a composer would have their debut release, whatever it would be, right? This is their new piece, and then you have your your recital. And then there's people sitting there, mostly... a physical media version of a recital. Yeah, perhaps, like, mostly the VIP members, the close friends, and then a few other people, and then maybe some some critics and whatnot. But it's, it's, you know, it probably wouldn't exceed much more than, like, 50 to 75 people, so it would be, like, intimate enough that it's not, like, a full-blown concert. Yeah. But it would be enough for the people closest to you and, by extension, some others to really focus and appreciate your music mm-hmm. and make them interested in your future as an artist. And that's something we kind of lost with music for a pretty long time, since like the 70s, maybe the 80s, where people... Well, people have album release parties, but yeah, you sometimes have, you they like the, the album. Exactly. It's, more of a party. it's usually that, a celebration of yeah. the album, not an, a listening to the album. Or for those of us who don't know artists and can get tickets mm-hmm. to these private little things, like even new albums coming out like you don't go out buy one and then invite over three or four friends like the stories I heard I hear from my parents and uh, my oh I did that all the time in high school but that's not the standard anymore back in the 70s and 60s and the 80s to some extent that was how people you know followed you know their favorite bands when Pink Floyd released an album my dad bought it went over to his brother's got his other brothers and his sister to show up and listen to it. There's a very like, simple, that's how they did it. But there's a simple reason for that. Accessibility. That's why it's changed. And that's it's, as it's personal the, as we get with our soundtracks in our head nowadays, it's also separating us from the very social aspect of music. Yeah, it's the accessibility. Because everyone now, if you have an internet connection, you pretty much have access to 90% of the music in the world. True. You don't have to share it because you can just send someone a link and they can hear it themselves. It's the it's a change that's similar in gaming about how I would often complain about how now video games are all played online, which I like playing online, but it used to be four, four jackholes in a room yelling at each other and throwing the controllers around because you were in the same space experiencing the game together. But and that doesn't happen time, really anymore. Over your headphones, you can be talking with one another and people not involved with the game and all your friends. And you can also get the Twitchers and all the video yeah, streams but and everything like that. 
normalizes it too because then you have some 12 year old cursing you out and calling you racial slurs well, because no, no, there's no. anonymity that was during the 90s it and still mostly the now. aughts mostly the it aughts it still happens now well everybody's in actual f- their own individual parties with their friends these days if you're going uh, out into I the guess. wider gaming and experiencing all the various COD or Battlefield players I mean you did you, you don't deserve to be called those bad words, but you're you're asking for it. One could argue, I don't think that's ever really going to go away. You know, right. there are just, you know, there are unsavory people, I think, in right. every corner of the globe it's just and it's, in every it's, corner it's, of culture. It's mostly the point that I'm trying to make, I think, that the summation, as I tend to do, is that I think that this, this physical space and trying to describe physical space and sometimes being at a loss for it is because of the accessibility of music. And so people don't feel like they need a room or a place now to listen to music because you can take it anywhere and play. Or now that's one thing that I wanted to get back to though like the, all right if you can listen anywhere then d- do you have preferences like wh- where do you get most of your listening done that's what I that's what I want to ask then let's right go now. around and do that for me and time of day where and when for the most part it's in the morning or in the afternoon it's mostly on my commutes or when I'm driving or running errands. Is it when you're energetic or is it when you are kind of, you know, in a little bit of a, a lull like you want to fill some time? It depends on the day. Like some commutes I'm wide awake and I'm energized and listen to upbeat music. Other days I am not and I'm not. That's kind of on a case by case. But I do most of my listening now commuting to and from work. The stuff that I'm just not super invested in or I am really familiar with, like the nostalgia pieces and things like that, I, I listen to make it fit the mood I'm in instead of making the mood fit the listen. So if I wanna if I wanna feel happy, I'll go with something great, you know, like feel good ink or something mm-hmm. like that. But when it comes to music I'm heavily invested in or music I'm not familiar with. Like the new stuff we listen to, I usually listen to it late at night when nothing else is around. Maybe I'll have a book open, maybe I won't. Uh, usually in my seat in the garage where I do my smoking. And then the next morning I'll actually listen to it again as I'm getting up. I'll have it first on my uh, headphones and then when I get up in the morning I'll be listening to it on my speaker, which gets pretty loud on my phone. But just to familiarize myself, I'll have it playing from the minute I wake up till through the shower till I'm on the drive to work. Hmm. I would say that for me it's either early in the morning, but not the first thing. Once I am energized mm-hmm. for the day, and then when I have that focus, then and when I'm ready to do something, then actually that might be my one of my first instincts because it actually will inspire me for something that I might do following. Secondly, would also be the equivalent, although it seems kind of like the seems to be the reverse logic, would be late at night. But yeah. so it would seem to be when I'm like you know have lost that energy, but it's actually like a little resurgence of energy for me because that's when you would are probably more likely to do something creative mm-hmm. where that inspire where that inspiration would manifest it not necessarily not necessarily in like hard labor mm-hmm. but at least in the ideas that you're probably going to expand you know the next day. So that's a really really good time to listen, I find. Um, and usually it's always at home right in front of the computer. Like, yeah. and very often doing absolutely nothing else than staring at the track bar in case I want to re-listen to a part I really, really like. Really nothing else going on when I'm in that, that deep-seated session. When I'm, when I'm listening to music for this show, I'm, it's mostly in front of my computer doing the same thing. That would be at night. 
Um, right. we we're talking about casual listening, like John was saying, either something you're really I, familiar with or something you're tuning out, that's on my And computer. I don't have much of a passive li- listening schedule. Maybe there should be more. I don't know. Maybe I would discover more I music suppose if you had a more regular schedule. True. <laughs> you know, because your schedule is a little oddball compared to ours. That is true. If your schedule was more regular and you were doing the same thing every day, like I am with my specific office job. Yeah. I mean, it's it's inherent with like anyone in music or connected to music in any way. Like, yeah. I, I had a jazz professor tell me that, oh, all my best ideas come at 2 a.m. Right. Right. And so like, oh, well, that, that's that's nice. That's validating to hear that from, you know, a, a man who's, who's been around in the industry. He's in his 50s. He he, he knows the way things work. And yeah. he's telling me, no, do your work at 2 a.m. <laughs> do all of your work at 2 a.m. Right. It's Whereas, validating. Like, I work at, a, at an office every day and John works at a store every day. So those schedules, for the most part, are pretty regular. Yeah. So we're always, we're going to listen to music while we're commuting. Because that's typically what most people do, and while you're not necessarily commuting, and all you, the time, you you use the time that would otherwise be wasted, right? Because well, commuting, well, yeah. or I would use that time to think and be a human, which which I is think, good, which is whole, good. Whole, whole other conversation. That's that's the thing. Whenever there's I'm, not enough boredom anymore. Whenever I'm commuting, usually it is it is to think. Yeah. I guess there's not enough boredom. I think that might even be next episode's conversation. It's sort of music a, related. Ooh, I want to do something with this. Funny thing is, you when I used to commute, I I I did have this instinct to I guess follow the crowd and put a a, a pair of headphones in my ears, and I realized that is not my natural inclination. Mm-hmm. That maybe seem really ironic for like you know someone in, involved with music, be like yeah. like, but that's the time. That's that. That, that's work. Yeah. <laughs> the music is work, and I've had other people tell me, like, oh, well, you don't want to get to a point where music is work. But when you're that involved in it, it can be a really rewarding form of work. Right, right? Sure. One that I, I, I relish in enough to really have to release that when you're actually commuting. Sure, no, and that makes perfect sense. I, I, like yeah. I said, it's, I think other side of the table, where you're coming from as far as schedule and all that stuff like, impacts that if stuff. If you're commuting to go to a concert, yeah. why would you like use more music and add on See, to that? See, but I do do that because I get myself revved up by the... I'm a weirdo who gets revved up for the show by listening to that artist on the way to the show. Uh, they're so not going to play everything. I need the silence to be a human before I get like bogged down by three potentially three hours of music. Yeah, see no, that, I'm with I'm, Matt on this one. Yeah. I, you need a hype man for something like that. Got, a hype man's only going to that hype. That's what friends are for. Yeah, they, they, they can. And hype you're going to you. listen to that music with your friends as you're driving to the concert. That's but true what too. if you're on the ferry? Well, then you have one of those splitters, and I actually got one of those. No, then you get a '90s boombox, and you do, exactly. and you, be that and you annoy everybody. <laughs> anyway, all right. And you do that head waggle where it goes forward with the beat. Oh God! Let's yeah. uh, let's before don't we get you. Into, please up. stop, John. <laughs> um, moving on. Why don't we do our spam for the week, and then Steve can tell us what we are doing next week. The spam of the week is quite simply title. It is parentheses. It no, not parentheses. Um. Uh, percentage sign, title, percentage sign. That's it. That's it. NFL wholesale jerseys. At least they're getting more concise. <laughs> Unlike our album. True. Yeah. True. Well, percent, vague, title, vague percent. but concise. Interesting. But Interesting. what percent? Those what things percent are not Interesting dichotomy. Exactly. Yes. All right. Well, what are we actually the entirety, doing? The entirety of the title is 100%. The album <laughs> that we are doing next yeah. week will be, oh, and I was excited to find this, Yusa by Jan Tiersen. Now, Yusa, that would be all in caps, that would be the name of the album, E-U-S-A, by Jan Tiersen, if you're not familiar. Um, he is a French composer and multi-instrumentalist most famous for the soundtrack to Amelie. So, you know, remember that film? 
I don't. No. You don't remember Amelie? No. It was a very widely circulated uh, foreign film that managed to make quite an interesting headway into the mainstream I, I around would, I would mid-2000s. Mid I would probably know it if I saw it. I don't know that I recognize it by the title. That may be early 2000s. Right. But you would definitely know, and you'd probably know some of his music as well. So, uh, as strange as the name may seem to an American ear, <laughs> Jan Tiersen is a pretty well-known guy. He actually doesn't claim to be a composer-composer. He actually he pretends to actually have derived in influence from punk music and has brought that into, or rather the principle of punk music, where you just play in order to play. And then you just, instead, his natural inclination is to go more classical, but yet it is still just a kind of raw instincts. He doesn't really claim to have a lot of classical background at all. I, I like that. I mean, like we talked about that a lot when um, um, Panless Parker is often on the podcast, because he does a lot of folk and steampunk aesthetic music that's based or kind of on a inclination and instinct of punk music. And so I think that's kind of cool. And always having a, 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 a strange perspective to kind of start from strange to what's considered the norm anyway yeah. is a nice jumping off point. So that's actually exciting to know. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we'll be doing that next week. Please tune in. Um, I do at the very end want to thank Fisk again for joining us last week. Um, that was a blast to have them on. They were very charming. I enjoy our, what is it, biannual or or biannual? Is that the thing? Uh, sort of. Uh, is that when, when it's every other year? Yeah. Sort of. What's turning into? We're, our consistency for guests is, is all <laughs> Well, I mean specifically for, for a special. <coughs> right, right, right. Evening sure. with. An evening with. But um, but it was a blast to have them. I appreciate them coming on. I'm hoping to check them out live a bit in October. Biennial, that's it. Biennial. Um, but, but thank you guys for coming on if you're listening. And on that note, remember, as always, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one -on -one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.